News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 17th. It's show number 18 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola, our Talk with Todd commentator, about hot home run hitters at the start of the season, about Chris Bryant, and about head-to-head play in daily fantasy baseball. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Ray Murphy, pinch hitting for Harold Nichols, who's taking care of some family business. And we'll have player news from the American League with Jock Thompson. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at LA right-hander Zach Greinke versus Colorado right-hander Jordan Lyles, Angels right-hander Garrett Richards taking on Houston right-hander Scott Feldman, and more. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler talks about how nothing in April is real. Maybe. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Todd Zola is in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday News and Notes edition, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report. And it's Ray Murphy pinch hitting for Harold Nichols. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Yeah, Harold had some family obligations this week, so I am glad to step in and talk about the National League a little bit. Well, and let's start in uh, in Colorado. To the surprise of a very few people, Latroy Hawkins and his microscopic decay rate have been removed from the closer role, and the Rockies might have been paying attention to Doug Dennis at BaseballHQ.com, who has been saying for a long time they should be using Adam Ottavino as their closer. Now they are. Yeah, it was uh, interesting the way that unfolded this week. There was sort of a one-day head fake to Raphael Betancourt because Adovino was unavailable the day they removed Hawkins from the role because Adovino had pitched a lot the first weekend of the season. So Betancourt got a save and caused a bunch of scurrying on Monday night or Tuesday morning, but then they've clearly gone to Adovino the next couple of days after that. Walt Weiss has clearly said that Adovino is the closer going forward. And as Doug says, there's every reason to have confidence in him. Uh, his skills have been closer worthy for a while now. They're the best skills in that pen. If the, And if there was a wart on his skill set, it was he had some trouble with left-handed batters. But it seems that with some changes to its pitch mix in March and early this season, he's plugged that hole too, which makes him, you know, I don't want to say bulletproof, but makes him, you know, really a sturdy closer option and someone that, you know, if he's available for pickup in your leagues this weekend, if you were in a shallower league and he didn't get rostered, you know, go after him hard. He does have excellent skills, especially the last three years. He's boosted that uh, dom rate to well over nine strikeouts per nine innings. A strikeout per inning is pretty good in any environment. Yeah, that's in this day and age, that's sort of the minimum standard for a closer. And obviously, it's all the more important to get outs without balls in play when you're pitching in Colorado, which he does. And on top of that, you know, he's got a nice little ground ball tilt too. You know, 47, 48% ground balls in the last couple of years. And, you know, that many ground balls and strikeouts is the way you need to survive in Coors Field. He's sort of the 
prototypical Coors Field closer. When I'm looking at pitchers in general, but closers specifically, I like to see a guy when you add up his strikeout percentage, that is the percentage of batter's face that he strikes out, plus his ground ball rate on uh, on those same batters, if you get up around 70% or so, you're starting to look at something really positive because there's so little opportunity, especially in Coors Field, for the long ball to kill a guy. That's right, and he is for the last couple of years has been knocking on the door of that standard anyway you know he's with uh, 47 48% ground ball rates and strikeout percents in the low 20s you know he's on that 70% or so threshold so as i said he's a uh, bid with confidence guy suddenly has jumped into the uh, you know if not the elite tier the you know the stable second tier of NL closers. And I checked uh, earlier, and uh, Ottavino's record in Coors Field is just about exactly the same as it is away from Coors Field, which is uh, also reassuring given the uh, proclivities of that particular ballpark to allow runs. His home run per nine rate is pretty much equal to in uh, home and away, well under 1.0 in both cases. His OPS against is pretty much the same in both. In fact, maybe a little better in Coors Field. So Autumn Ottavino has a lot of things to like. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's a lot of velocity there. You know, he's, uh, you don't often see with that ground ball tilt. That often suggests you're throwing a lot of two seam fastballs and, you know, you're like a 90 to 92 guy trying to, you know, induce those ground ball outs. But he's a, you know, 94, 95 mile an hour fastball guy that he still manages to get people to pound it into the ground. And, you know, that's obviously enough velocity to blow him away with. You know, he's a, he's a guy with a lot of weapons, essentially. Baseball HQ has upgraded Adam Ottavino's projection, giving him 28 saves for the balance of the season and, of course, bumping his value nicely up into the mid-teens. So it'll be interesting to see the fab bidding this weekend, given what we saw with Jason Grilly uh, last weekend. Uh, Speaking of closers, Ray, there were some rumors that Brandon Morrow might somehow winkle his way into the end of the bullpen in San Diego. Instead, he started the year in the rotation, and he's opened the season with a couple of solid starts. Morrow was covered by BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher Byers Guide columnist Stephen Nick Grant and got some coverage in facts and flukes performance validation coverage as well. Ray, is Brandon Morrow for real as a starting pitcher? I think it's too early to say, but it's interesting to put together so, to connect some of the dots here and see what's going on. Uh, it's sort of a nice juxtaposition of the two columns here. Fact and fluke sort of took the longer term view on Morrow in his last couple of years, which of course have been injury riddled and sort of took a look at some of the skills hits he's taken, you know, that might be injury related. One of the th- key points they called that what we called out in the fact and fluke column is that he's always been a, you know, high strikeout, high swing and miss guy, but his swing strike rate has plummeted over the last couple of years. He was an 11 or 12% swing K guy in 2010, 2011, back when he was still good in putting up triple d- digit BPVs. But the, uh, the, as he's gone off the rails in the last couple of years, his BPV has been plummeting and the swinging strike rate's been coming along with it. So we sort of identified the swinging strike rate as a, you know, key leading indicator there of Morrow's effectiveness. And then sure enough, you know, two starts is a tiny sample size, but if you go and look at his two starts so far this year, the swinging strikes are back. He's got 22 swinging strikes in 14 innings, which is, you know, a quite stout rate. Now, let's be careful, throw out the caveats. There are two home starts in San Diego where he faced San Francisco and Arizona. Those aren't great offenses. It's a favorable environment to pitch in, but he's going to pitch in San Diego all year as long as he's healthy. So maybe some reason for optimism. Health is obviously a huge question. We can't take two starts and project them out because there are some significant durability questions here. But right now, if you're looking for a short-term pickup, a streaming option, something like that, Morrow 
for the moment, looks to be back to being healthy and effective. Something interesting also about Morrow that I noticed at the Baseball HQ Player Link pages, his ground ball percentage was sort of historically around 40 or even below, 37, 40, 36, like that. Then last year, all of a sudden, boom, he jumps it up to 51%, and he's held that gain so far in two games this year at 49%, and his uh, dominance rate has come down a little bit from just over uh, 8 last year to just under 8 this year. But again, when you combine a lot of ground balls with a fair number of strikeouts, there's some small reason for optimism here, notwithstanding the injury risk. Yeah, that does look like it's a pitch mix change or something like that. That's an effect. I haven't had a chance to go look at uh, his distribution of, of stuff, but that, that does seem to be the case. As I said, you know, there's never really never been any question that Morrow has good stuff and has been effective for stretches at a time. It was only really that 2010-2011 peak where he managed to do that for 150, 180 innings a year, but you know, like as I said, there's no question that when he's healthy and on, he could be a fan- fantasy asset. The question is, how long can he stay in that mode this year? But it's at least encouraging that he's starting the year in that mode. So we'll see how long this lasts. Baseball HQ's projection for Brandon Morrow is still not entirely optimistic. He's below replacement value with just a handful of wins, and we're only projecting 68 innings. But, of course, uh, that all all hinge on his health and the situation in San Diego. Over in Milwaukee, Carlos Gomez had his uh, annual injury already, pulling a hamstring. He was day-to-day for a while, but now the news is he's probably going to go to the DL. Gomez was also the subject of Facts and Flukes coverage recently at BaseballHQ.com, Ray. So how should fantasy owners play Carlos? Carlos Gomez. Yeah, the story with Gomez has really changed a lot in the last week because you know his skill set is based on one of the better power speed combinations in the game these days. You know he came up as sort of a pure speedster, but has managed to lay you know really plus power on top of that to become such an asset, and has even in the last couple of years you know sort of finished off the package of becoming a five five category player by you know bumping his batting average up into the 280s you know this was a guy who really filled out the stat sheet for you and now you know hopefully he'll only be out for a couple of weeks with this hamstring issue as you said he was initially day-to-day so hopefully that means even though he's going to the DL that it's you know a three-week thing and not a six-week thing time will tell on that but you certainly have to worry about how how much he's going to run, at least initially, when he comes back off the DL. And this might have a season-long effect on sapping his speed a little bit. He's always been a very aggressive runner on the bases with you know, stolen base opportunity percentages, which is the percentage of times he runs when he gets to first base up in the 35, 40, even 50% range. So you know, he's been boosting his stolen base totals by being very aggressive when he gets to first base and we'll have to see when he comes back whether he goes right back into that mode or if it takes a while. It's interesting, back in 2011-2012, as you say, 50% in 2012 is stolen base opportunity. That is, half the time he had a chance to steal, he went for it, which is uh, which is an extremely aggressive rate and indicates an acquiescence by the team in allowing him pretty much a, a full-time 100% green light. That has d- declined markedly over the last couple of years from down to 37%, then 31% last year, 25 only this year in limited play. So it looks like the speed was headed in the wrong direction anyway and uh, it looks like we have to really take with a grain of salt the possibility that he's going to come back and be a 40-35 stolen base guy. Yeah, that the, the ship may be sailing on that as we as we see him go to the DL. 
as you say, the aggression on the base pass, what, what that was compensating for was the fact that he's not a great OBP option. You know, as I said, he hits for a decent average, but he doesn't walk a lot. So, you know, his on-base percentages were never a real strength, even for a leadoff hitter. So he was getting the stolen bases by being very aggressive and getting a lot of at-bats at the top of that, you know, what, what for the last couple of years has been a pretty decent Milwaukee lineup. But he's not getting the first base, you know, 35, 38% of the time. It's more of a 32, 33% and then run a lot when he gets there. So the if the run a lot when he gets there part comes into question, you know, it starts to chip away at his value proposition. It's still, you know, there's still a lot to like here, but you know that uh, the upper bound on those stolen bases is, uh, you know, seems to be coming back to earth. It is worth noting that his walk rate has increased each of the last couple of years, 5% in 2012, then 6 the next year, all the way up to 8 last year, which is not elite, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. And he had a 356 on base percentage last year, which I'm sure was a, a really welcome uh, addition to a lot of teams who play that format in their leagues. And, of course, he had those 35, 34 stolen bases last year. Uh, right now we're projecting Carlos Gomez to remain an elite first-round style hitter, a $30 value on 21 homers. 31 steals and a 280 average, but I, I'm with you. I think the steals, maybe we have to do some adjustments uh, and maybe de- reduce his value accordingly. Finally, Ray, the Diamondbacks sent Cuban import Yasmani Thomas down to the minor leagues during spring training for a combination of reasons, partly performance, but partly attitude as well. He's back on the major league roster now. They've called him up, and that sets up a whole cascade of effects in the Arizona roster, the outfield, and the batting order. What's going on in Arizona? Boy, I wish I knew. As you say, there, you know, there were some, I don't want to say conflicting reports, but varied reports, I guess, about what exactly they were trying to accomplish with Tomas by sending him down to the minors in the first place. And it, it certainly seems dubious that whatever lessons they wanted to teach him or whatever adjustments they wanted him to make have been accomplished in, what, a, a week of minor league play? I, you really thought he'd be back you know, sooner than later. But the funny thing about this is that there's not, a precipitating event that's bringing him back to Arizona. You know, Jake Lamb is doing fine at third base in the early going and certainly, you know, hasn't had enough of an opportunity to lose that job to begin with. They're saying that Tomas is probably going to spend most of his time in the outfield mix out there. But again, you know, there's nothing that's really, you know, there's no DL move or anything like that that's triggered an opportunity for him. So he's just coming in and really overcrowding that outfield. So between Mark Trumbo and A.J. Pollock and Ender Inciarte and David Peralta, you've really got a five guys for three spots sort of situation evolving here. And, you know, it was good news in particular for Inciarte and Peralta when Tomas went out because that sort of created the, you know, starting one starting outfielder and then sort of the roving fourth outfielder role for both of those guys. And it propped up their value and their playing time proposition in late March. And now just Two plus weeks later, we sort of have to rip that all up and say, oh, you know, are they just going to ride the hot hand or is Trumbo because of his defense liability? Is there a trade coming here? You know, Arizona made a couple of deals late in camp, moving some pieces around. They're a team in transition, and this might signal that the transition isn't done yet. Yeah, especially against... uh uh, right-handed pitching, it seems to really throw things for a loop. And and as you said, with five outfielders chasing three spots, it's not like they can rotate a guy through the DH, of course, which would be the solution in an American League team. And uh, I, I think Peralta looks like the the, the guy who's uh, uh, shaky here and maybe Inciarte. But the 
but the because they were in the platoon and maybe that's where they figure Tomas is going to get all the at bats. But at the same time, we have to also remember that in spring training there was a lot of raised eyebrows about uh, Tomas's work with the glove. He played himself out of the third base mix immediately, pretty much, and he was not exactly a, 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 a Gold Glove caliber outfielder either. Yeah, and they already have one outfield butcher on hand in Trumbo, so you sort of feel like maybe they can't play both of those guys together. But if you look at, look at the way we're allocating the playing time now, we sort of have A.J. Pollock secure at 85% because we feel like he's the true center fielder and none of these other guys are really a challenge to that. And we still have Trubbo at 75 in the outfield and Tomas at 75 in the outfield because you sort of have to make the assumption that if they called up Tomas, they didn't call him up to sit. He, if he's gonna, he's either gonna play in the majors or he'd be back in the minors playing there. So if you take all of those assumptions, that leaves you with not much playing time for Peralta and Inciarte, and we've cut them down to Peralta at 40% and Inciarte at 25. So you're right. For now, those guys look like the the losers in this situation, but that's sort of just us, you know, trying to apply logic and common sense to this situation and. Who knows? Maybe logic and common sense don't actually apply here. They often don't in Arizona, in fact. And uh, I wonder that you you mentioned that it doesn't seem like uh, Tomas could have accomplished much in uh, in barely a week in the minor leagues. But maybe you know all it takes is one bus ride, and you think, "Geez, if I'd have been playing a little smarter and being a little more cooperative, uh, I could have been riding in a charter jet." <laughs> and instead, I'm you know banging along the interstate in this uh, you know refashioned. Uh, country music tour bus i think i'm gonna you know try to get my head on straight and get up there and uh, start enjoying the high life you think you saw a few too many tumbleweeds in that first week huh yeah that's right yeah all of a sudden ed this is not what i you know signed up for so you know if, if all it took was a week of uh, of you know bush league to get his head on straight maybe it's a good thing for him and now the question is how much do we fab uh, as manny thomas for assuming he's available yeah if you go back to what we thought about him Entering spring training when we thought that, you know, they paid him a lot of money so he was going to play, sort of all of those initial assumptions apply. You know, the power is real, but the question is, you know, almost every other aspect of his game has holes. So how, how, how will Arizona tolerate those holes and how can you tolerate the impacts to the other categories where he's probably going to stri- strike out a lot? So batting average is a question. You know, there's no speed there and the defense may force him out of the lineup either regularly as a defensive replacement later in games or even a few days a week where they decide they just can't tolerate him and Trumbo together. Uh, You know, if you need to chase power, you know, it's awfully early in the season to be chasing a particular categorical need for your team. But if you have a sense that you need power, it's going to be hard to ignore Tomas because the power is the one thing that we know for sure is real here. And, you know, that's a hard thing to come by in today's game. That's kind of why Arizona paid him so much in the first place. BaseballHQ.com projections have Yasmani Thomas nearly full-time, worth around 10 or $11 because of the batting average. Good power, though, as Ray Murphy suggests, 15 homers, 71 RBIs, balance of the season, just a two forty five projected batting average. Uh, Ray, before we let you go, what do you got going on with your speculator column? Yeah, so we've uh, sort of wrapped up the preseason tour and you know, covered you know leaders and award winners and surprise teams and those sorts of things. So I'm sort of in a waiting game where I try to wait as long as I can before I start 
even beginning to interpret in-season sample sizes, but I'll probably throw some stuff at the wall in a column this weekend and start to talk about some of the stuff we've seen in the first week or two and, you know, make an observation or two or a speculative conclusion that we just, you know, caveat the heck out of, right? And say, you know, <laughs> small sample may apply, your mileage may vary, you know, it's only 10 days and say that 17 different ways and then get past that and try to make some sense out of what we've seen in the first two weeks of the season. All right, Ray, thanks very much again for pinch hitting. Thank you, PD. We'll talk soon. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com and this week has stepped up to pinch hit for Harold Nichols on the National League beat on this edition of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. Harold will be back next week. Now let's turn to the American League and the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com. It's Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, PD, good to be back as usual. Jock, you wrote in your American League West coverage in Playing Time tomorrow about Fernando Rodney of Seattle. He started the year as the closer. Everybody uh, bid on him pretty aggressively in most of the leagues I read about. And uh, he's not been too strong. He, he went out and coughed up a save against the Dodgers. He hasn't looked good in general. Is Fernando Rodney a marked man? You know, this is an interesting one because we were all over this in early March and that uh, Rodney is a free agent. And, of course, the Mariners have those great arms um, it's really too early to tell, but this was a possibility. Um, the interesting thing about this story is that Rodney's 38, he's a free agent to be at the end of 2015, and he's always been volatile, particularly his control. And he, he got two saves in his first two outings, but now he's given up seven runs in the next two and given up four walks while just recording one strikeout in his first three and a third innings. So this is a small sample, typically, and the Mariners are going to give him a lot of rope early. They want him to succeed. And it's early in a season in which I'm pretty sure everyone sees Seattle as the lone AL West powerhouse. Uh, And I think the Mariners kind of look at this as well. But like I said, another thing that makes this interesting are some of the other arms Seattle has in their pen. They do have a rich bullpen, even with past closer Tom Wilhelmsen on the DL with a hyperextended right elbow. So if Seattle decides that powerhouse or not, they need to make some adjustments in their bullpen and replace Fernando Rodney, who are the alternatives? Well, the first one is setup man Danny Farquhar, who actually saved a bunch of games before Rodney arrived on the scene as a rookie. Um, he hasn't been his typical shutdown self in the early going. I think he's given up six hits and two runs in his first four and one-third innings. Um, and, and Dominic Leone, who was also very good last year in his uh, MLB debut, um, he was actually demoted for a little while there. Um, he was called up to replace Wilhelmsum. But you've got Carson Smith, who's been lights out. He's, he's struck out seven in, in his first four or five innings. Uh, Yorvis Medina has been very good, and, and he had control problems last year, but he's showing signs that he's beginning to harness those. Um, all of these names, I think, are, are, are power arms that are rosterable in deeper formats where relief pitchers matter. While we shouldn't expect Seattle to panic about this, uh, certainly if you're a canny owner, you want to position yourself to uh, take advantage should the Mariners decide that they got to make changes, especially if Rodney turns out maybe to be hurt or if he just continues to underperform and give up runs. So how does the owner who wants to exploit this situation exploit this situation? Farquhar is still the best bet uh, to to replace Rodney at closer if he can write himself. On the other hand, I I really do like Carson Smith uh, over the long haul. Um, this is not a bad place to speculate if you're, if you're looking at one, two-week pickups for the closer carousel. 
Staying in the American League West, Jock, the Rangers, boy, what a terrible year they're having for injuries. It seems like every day you pick up the paper or open a web browser and uh, somebody else in the Rangers has gone on the DL, especially in their pitching staff. They lost Darvish, of course, in spring training. Now Derek Holland is out for at least two months. It looks almost like an instant replay of last year. So let's start off by asking the obvious question first. Who gets Derek Holland's slot in the rotation? Well, the first choice they made was Anthony Renato, who um, who who. Did uh, did pretty well in in AAA, uh, but uh, he got slagged by the Angels the other day. The best bet for a long term replacement, at least for a month or two, would be Wandy Rodriguez, who was picked up at the end of spring training. He was actually throwing pretty well in AAA. Uh, unfortunately, for fantasy purposes, he's 36. Uh, his health has been questionable, and he's had two consecutive seasons of serious gopheritis that in Texas uh, and the American League uh, are a little bit scary. Um, you've got rookie Alex Gonzalez, who has the most upside, but he only has 40-plus innings above high A ball. Uh, he's not ready, and, and really, when you think about it, logic suggests that the Rangers not throw him into this mess right now. No, especially considering playing time uh, considerations and uh, arbitration, Super 2, and so forth. Uh, Rod Truesdell of BaseballHQ.com covered this story in playing time today. And uh, also in Texas, Ryan Rua who uh, was off to a decent start. He's on the DL. He has a bad sprain of his uh, ankle, and the Rangers don't really know how long he's going to be out. He was playing left field. Uh, who's going to be playing left field now? Well, they're going to go with Jake Smolinski and Carlos Pugero in a in a left-right, uh, or I should say a right-left platoon. Pugero is the left-handed hitter, so he'll get the majority of those at-bats. Um, and and Pugero's actually done pretty well in the early going. He's He's got good power. The problem is he's got he's got a career minor uh, minor league contact rate of around fifty nine percent, or a little over sixty percent, I should say. That's his major league uh, contact rate. So you're going to get batting average problems along with the power. Um, he's not somebody I would place a big bet on long term. Well, Pagero has been a hot topic on message boards, and uh, there's been some somewhat aggressive fab bidding in, in the early going in leagues where Pagero is eligible. But gosh, uh, career major league batting average, I think, is barely over 200, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, he's 28, so um, that 66% contact rate and over 3,000 minor league at bats don't really make us too optimistic about his future development. Over in the American League Central, really bad news for the Cleveland Indians. I think they have aspirations to compete for the title in that division, or had, until they had just a critical loss. Cleveland catcher Jan Gomes is going to be out for at least six weeks, probably more like eight. He suffered a bad knee sprain in a collision at the plate. So what is Cleveland going to do now behind the dish? Yeah, this was terrible because Gomes was was a guy who could give you 20 home run power behind the plate and, and a decent batting average. Um Right now, Roberto Perez is going to be the starting catcher while Gomes is out, and uh, and Tom Kephart pointed out in his Playing Time Today column that um, while Perez had a two seventy one batting average in 85 at-bats last year, it was inflated by a 38% uh, hit rate, and uh, he doesn't have a lot of power. Um, uh, you've got Brett Hayes uh, behind him, and Brett Hayes has never hit well in the majors. Um, this is not a place that I'd be fishing for, for, for at-bats if I were looking for a fantasy catcher. Perez was okay at AAA last year. I think he hit over 300, had you know a handful of home runs and some RBIs in limited uh, at-bats, I think 175 at-bats or thereabouts. So why not Perez? Well, Perez's contact rate has never been that great. And, uh, and even now, um, he's still just a little over 70%. Uh, um, this is a guy who uh, uh, 
he just doesn't have he's he's really not showing us much in the way of an offensive force uh, going forward of course the obvious question jock is carlos santana has some catching experience it would maybe clear up a little playing time issues elsewhere on the diamond for the tribe is there any chance carlos santana is going to don the tools of ignorance and get back there behind the dish you know, I guess it could happen, but from what all from all reports, it sounds like Cleveland thinks that ship has sailed. Uh, they want his bat in the lineup. Um, they want to keep him healthy, obviously. I, I doubt Cleveland would risk that. I think he's going to be playing first base uh, and DH most of the year. Are there any long-term concerns for Dynasty and Keeper League players about Jan Gomes' knee injuries and catchers? Not a really good combination. No, you're right, and there are and there are concerns. Um, uh, he he had he had 21 homers last year, and a knee injury for a catcher is is not good. And he he also uh, uh, our our speed index suggests that uh, he was potentially an untapped source on the base pass. So this knee injury could end that. In the American League Central, continuing, uh, we have Alex Rios of Kansas City uh, broke his hand. He's going to be gone for a while. Uh, I know you're a Jared Dyson fan. Does this give Jared Dyson a shot at working his magic again? Yeah, Jared always finds a way to get himself into the lineup. And really, he hasn't had, um, he, he's had 200 plus at bats for the last three years, never more than 300 at bats, yet he still earns double digit earnings on the basis of his speed. Um, he has a, a very clear time to most of the at-bats, well, the full-time at-bats against right-handed pitching. Um, he's going to be working a platoon with Paulo Orlando, um, right-handed counterpart. Um, Dyson should be stashed, stashed immediately. He's stolen 30-plus bases in each of the last three years in, in getting those 200-plus at-bats. Um, good, great speed, decent contact rate around 80%, uh, 60% ground ball rate, so he knows who he is. Um, he always finds a way, doesn't he? Well, he seems to, and it, it, all, it all stems from the speed, but I think another reason that he makes a fairly attractive pickup if he's available in a league is he plays really good defense, and, and uh, as, a, as a team that thrives on good base running and defense more than you know, the typical approach of power, Kansas City might really like having Dyson out there. Yeah, Dyson is a tremendous center fielder. You're right. And and defense is always, always underrated in fantasy. He's going to get his time. Now, his counterpart isn't bad. It isn't a bad defender either. And I'm, I'm talking about uh, Paulo Orlando. Um, this is a guy who has some of the same skill set that uh, Dyson had. He stole 34 bases last year at AAA. He's probably not as fast as Dyson. Might be, might might hit with a little more pop, but uh, not a lot of power. He's going to be getting the right-handed at bats. Look for Jared Dyson to um, to uh, get uh, the left-handed at bats against right-handed pitching. The last three years, Jared Dyson's had uh, on-base percentages in the mid to high 320s. Naturally, we'd like to see that be more like 350, but uh, for a guy who steals as a readily and uh, with so much uh, high percentage as Jared Dyson. He probably doesn't have to get on base uh, much more than 320, 325 to be an elite burner who could really pick up a lot of uh, a lot of stolen bases. And as you mentioned, uh, last year, for instance, he had 260 at-bats, which is a fairly typical year. Gosh, with, uh, with Rios out for any length of time, he could easily get over 300 at-bats, which means he could put a threat on 40 stolen bases. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, um, he's he's going to get most of the at bats with Rios gone now, and and two hundred plus at bats again is is not far fetched. It's looking good right now. Finally, Jock Chris Olson of BaseballHQ.com had an update on the ongoing Matt Weeders injury saga. Of course, Weeders trying to return from Tommy John surgery. Uh, they thought he'd be ready. He's still not ready, and now it's looking less and less likely anybody knows when he will be ready. What's the current scoop on Matt Weeders? 
Yeah, I think everyone thought originally that Weeders was going to be ready earlier in the year, uh, but uh, there's he's not even guaranteeing right now that he'll be back uh, by May 1st, uh, given that there's really no target date for his return. Yeah, I, I, I wondered about that whole, uh, seemed very optimistic to me. I know he's not a pitcher. We know what the timeline is for pitchers, typically 16 to 18 months for full recovery from Tommy John, but a catcher uses his arm as much as a pitcher. Every time the pitcher throws it to the catcher, the catcher throws it back, plus the long throws to second and, and trying to nab base dealers. This is not a, a very promising sign for Matt Weeders. So should we be turning our attention to Caleb Joseph, who's uh, was called his interim replacement, is now starting to look like the possibly permanent replacement for Matt Weeders? You can pick up Joseph for some power. Uh, he showed in his work last season after Weeders went down, he hit nine home runs and 246 at-bats. And the nine home runs were supported by both of our power index and expected power index metrics. Um, the problem with, with Caleb Joseph is that he posted a 72% contact rate and a, and, a, uh, and a 207 batting average. So even with improvement on that Major League debut from 2014, He's likely going to be a low batting average, uh, medium to high home run kind of guy. So don't be too fooled by the nine hits he has in his first 24 at-bats. Yeah, that was an uh, attractive-looking thing. Anytime a guy starts off basically hitting 375, but I agree with you. I don't think this is anywhere near sustainable, and uh, 225, 230 might be a more reasonable expectation. Jock, thanks very much for helping us out again this week. We'll catch up with you again next week. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our American League reporter for the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. When we come back, it's our rec- when we come back, it's our regular weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is gone, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Baseball HQ is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed. Like Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column titled, Not Gambling? Seriously? Facts and Flukes Performance Validation looks at Buster Posey, Jason Grilly, and many other players. Dr. HQ Rick Wilton looks at Carlos Gomez, Jan Gomes, David Wright, and all the other players headed for the DL. Plus, we have our playing time columns, minor league coverage, everything refreshed every day to give you the fantasy baseball intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, a contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be back, Patrick. One of the topics that comes up uh, early on in the season is just how we ought to respond to being early on in the season, and I know at FantasyAlarm.com you wrote a column called Category Impact, looking at uh, some guys who have hit some early home runs in bunches. And uh, the question I want to start with before we talk about particular players is, how do we know when power like this is real? You see a guy hit four or five home runs in the first week or 10 days. What do you look at to say, yeah, I think this might be for real and something I need to be paying attention to for the whole season? Well, the, the, I mean, the short answer is we don't. And, and what you need to do is take each player 
on a on a player by player basis, see where the power came from. If it is it just a, a fluke that it's got a really high home run fl- per fly ball? Is his contact better? Did he have a you know? Did he start off in cores and then go to Arizona? Uh, so I try to take it on a player by player basis. Sometimes, if it was a, a guy that was hurt last year and you know he has some early season power. There's no saying that, you know, what he's going to hit for homers, but maybe you can say, you know, Paul Goldschmidt, we were concerned about the injury after being hit by a pitch. I mean, he's got three homers. It's not a ton, but to me, it's enough to say that, all right, he's not going to get off to a super slow start as far as power goes. So I kind of, to me anyway, you sort of have to go on a, on a player by player basis and, and, and figure out what was expected and why what was it was expected. And in that two or three week period that it's been, is there anything at all that, you know, can help us fine tune what we thought? Cause, you know, we're going on spring stats. We're going on what they did last year. You know, health is the biggest concern or, or the biggest, uh, change that we sort of didn't know about in the spring. So a lot of my analysis has to do with health, but there's things like part, you know, places in the batting order and subtle instances like that that can sort of help again fine tune how we might think about these players. Well, taking Goldschmidt as an example, he's got three home runs in nine games in the season so far. If you if you just play that out as a pro rata kind of thing, that's uh, what about fifty four home runs for the entire year. I don't think there's anybody who really believes that Paul Goldschmidt's going to hit fifty four home runs in a year. And then we look down, and Dustin Pedroia has the same three home runs in the same nine games, and we for sure don't think he's going to hit fifty four home runs. So, uh, what's the method to calibrate? the expectations based on these early performances it's more a narrative than it is an actual you know spreadsheet driven change of expectation uh you know the narrative of goldschmidt and 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 at the fsta back in january uh our bud ron chandler went for jose abreu over paul goldschmidt because of the fear of a of a slow start because of the broken hand that he had last year so it's four homers in the first 10 or 11 games you know, is that a sign that his hand is okay or, you know, did he just run into a couple? Sometimes we have to make these snap decisions and we don't have the time to wait for the, for the rest of the season. So, you know, to me, four homers in, in 10 or 11 games tells me, I mean, I'm not saying Goldschmidt's going to hit 50 or 60, but I think that the 30 that he would be expected to hit previous to the injury is in play. Uh, you know, Pedroia, uh, you know, the narrative is, is, you know, he'll, you know, he'll, He'll play through any injury in the world. He won't tell the manager he's hurt. So past couple of seasons, he's had some finger and some other assorted ailments, and the numbers are down. So he's got three and nine games, two of which were in one game. So maybe he just felt great that that one day. But the thing with Pedroia is, even at his peak, he you know he I think twenty one home runs is his career high. So what you know we're not expecting again thirty or forty, but. He also had 10 or 11 the past couple of years, so I think expecting high teens again is reasonable for Pedroia and not the single digit to low double digits that he may have gotten the past couple of years. So I'm not going to put a number on it. I don't, I'm not going to change my projection, uh, or, or make a projection, but I feel, you know, with Goldschmidt, I feel like we have the old Paul Goldschmidt and Pedroia. I think we've got the Pedroia from a couple of years ago, add in a couple of years of aging because Man, it's hard to believe that he's been around a few years at this point. Uh, so uh, it's more of the, I don't want to call it hand-waving, but kind of big picture as opposed to uh, micro 
analysis of the actual number of home runs. It always surprises me to look at uh, anything to do with Dustin Pedroia and realize he's in his 30s now. It seems like you know he has that kind of uh, demeanor that makes you always think of the perpetual 24-year-old hustler, and uh, and he is n- getting a little longer in the tooth. Uh, then we have a guy like Dustin Ackley in Seattle uh, who's just hitting that age where you'd start to expect if there's going to be a power surge or a power peak coming that this might be the year for it, and he's got uh, started off with three home runs in his first seven games, and this seems like a, a bit of a sticky, tricky wicket. There's a couple of things in play with a guy like Dustin Ackley. Uh, last year, he showed uh, an increase in home run per fly ball and an increase in fly ball percent. I think that uh, you know home runs are, are two factors: the amount of the home run per fly ball and the number of fly balls that you hit. Uh, I think that the home run per fly ball is you know, probably more of a skill in the number of fly balls. It's just kind of a, a function of your actual swing. I don't know if one will call that a skill or not, but um, you know, one can change their, their swing, I, I suppose, to uh, to lift the ball more. But the, in, in, he's at the point of his career where it's not surprising that these marks are on the uh, upswing. Uh, so I'm not, you know, not surprised that he might be hitting for more power. But the thing you need to do with a guy like Ackley is, is at least early on, is temper your expectations. Because at least early, he's actually in a platoon. And it's the good side of a platoon, but it's still it's still a platoon. So in a mixed league, I'm not sure that I want to quite put him in the class of the Matt Joyce's and the and, and, and players of that ilk, the Mitch Moreland's that are going to probably hit even more home runs than Dustin Ackley. But in an AL-only league, uh, part of the sort of the theme of this was a lot of owners like to sell high. They like to, uh, you know, buy low, sell high. So they want to sell high on players. For years, I've talked about buying high, in which, which is basically you don't believe the player is going to fall as far as the guy selling him does. So you, in essence, are, you're, you're not buying as low as he wants you to buy. So what, what, which of these players that are starting fast, if their owner puts on their market, am I going to go after? And in an AL only league, I'm going after Ackley. Because I'm not as concerned about the platoon part of it because I just want, you know, a platoon player is still very, very valuable in AL only. And if indeed his power is still a little bit on the upswing, it's going to somewhat mitigate the, the loss of at bats. And if it is on the upswing, at some point, maybe he doesn't play in a platoon and maybe he is full time. Not a risk I'm taking in mixed, but a risk I'll take in AL only. So I look at Ackley as a guy that if his, uh, if his AL only owner wants to try to, you know, you know, get one over in the league and sell high on him. I'm, I'm all over that one. I'm, 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 I want to know what it takes. Justin Upton, uh, a lot of question marks about him moving to uh, maybe one of the worst hitter parks in all of baseball, and it doesn't seem to have slowed him down any. Is this a, a sign that we should be quite confident? Justin Upton had three home runs in his first 10 games, not being bothered by Petco Park at all. I'm not going to say he's out of the woods yet. He's hit two in Petco. It's better than not hitting two. I think... Uh, I'd be more worried if he hadn't hit one yet than I am elated that he's hit two. You know, but at least thus far, um, you know, he has shown. You know, he's shown the ability to hit the ball out of Petco Park. Now, as far as keeping a little something in mind, Turner Field wasn't the easiest field to hit a home run in either, and Petco Park was designed more to keep Barry Bonds in the yard than to keep right-handed hitters in the yard. So 
it's not quite as bad as some people think for right. It's it's not doesn't it's not plus for power, but for right-handed hitters, it's not quite as bad as uh, it is as for left-handed hitters. So you know, it, but it's it is you know it's it's good to see that Upton's got a couple of homers. I mean, I think that if he hadn't had one, we'd be waiting for that first one. You know, is Petko going to hurt him? Is he going to change his swing? It, to me, anyway, he's not intimidated by it. He's just going up there and swinging. And when Justin Upton made contact, he's going to, you know, pretty much hit it out of any park. So um, if you got a discount on Upton because of the park change, you're probably going to get a nice little return on your uh, on your March investment. Nelson Cruz, six home runs in his first nine games. That's uh, well over 100 home runs for the season. I don't think anybody believes that's in play. The, the question about about Cruz has always been health. He's moved to a clearly a worse ballpark, and it doesn't seem to have slowed him down any. When you look at a Nelson Cruz situation, Todd, what do you think about his uh, his home run potential for the balance of the year, given the hot start? I get a feeling that uh, at the end of the year, if you would ask me which player I was most wrong on, it's going to be Nelson Cruz. And uh, and, it, and I and I and my my buddy Tristan Cockroft from ESPN uh, tried to talk some sense into me and he sort of did but didn't quite do it enough and that I was uh you mentioned injury prone and to me that's the key uh we think of Nelson Cruz we think of you know playing 120 games a year missing a lot of time and and you know the time he is playing hitting a lot of home runs well in 2012 and 2014 the man played 159 games in 2013 he played 109 games but remember he missed 50 of those with a suspension. So you know, who knows who's to say if he would have played all 50, but the math works out nice that if he, if he did, that's 159 games for three straight years. So uh, so maybe I was a little uh, a little wrong thinking, or the, the injury-prone aspect of the Nelson Cruz probably should have backed off on that a bit. And I'm not so sure that he, I'm not going to say he's going to play 159 games, but if I thought him for 120 or 130, I think to say 145 is 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 a much more realistic expectation, and even those 20 or 25 games uh, is a lot when it, you know when you come to prorating projections. So that's uh, probably probably going to have been wrong there. And the park, who knows? I think in the, you know over time he'll lose a couple of home runs because he's going to Safeco, but I don't think it's going to be as drastic as if you just take the park factor in a vacuum. So, you know, can the man hit 40? Yeah, he could, he could probably hit 40. He's not going to hit the, you know, the, the 50 or 60 that it might be prorated. But if I thought he was going to hit 25 or 26 at the beginning of the season, that's probably going to be a little bit low. I think, you know, I think you can set, I think you can set an over under at 35 at this point and, and, and have pretty much, uh, people going on either side. When you were talking about the effect that the park has, it wasn't Nelson Cruz I was reading about before the season started. It was Matt Kemp. And somebody somewhere made a really interesting point that if you just overlaid where his home runs landed that he hit in Dodger Stadium and and elsewhere and just overlaid them onto San Diego's park at Petco Field, that uh, they would have been home runs anyway. He's hitting them far enough that they're just going to go out of any ballpark short of, you know, those old 1950s ones where you had to hit it 560 feet or whatever the case was. That in modern ballparks, a lot of these guys, we kind of tend to overemphasize that they're moving to so-called uh, tough parks to hit home runs in, but that that's a general statement about all players. And some of these guys are hitting the ball 440 feet. That ball's going out of every park in Major League Baseball, and it, it was 
true for Matt Kemp, at least in this overlay that I saw. Maybe it's also true of Nelson Cruz. He just hits the ball far. ESPN Home Run Tracker has this information, and you can literally, you know, and they do correct for environmental conditions, the wind and the atmosphere and the temperature, and they get the true landing distance of a home run, and then they overlay that and on, onto the each and every park. And, and I, you know, we, I mentioned Ron earlier. Uh, Ron also saw this this uh, study, and we did the first pitch forum tours. And early in February, he wasn't as on to Matt Kemp, but in, in the interim, the couple weeks that I didn't see him, he had seen that study, and we were answering questions at the end. He and I were both – I've been on Matt Kemp uh, pretty much – intuitively figuring this was going to happen anyway with the parks not having actually seen the data but i've got matt kemp on a lot of teams thus far and and we were both in lockstep uh when we were answering questions at the end of the tour as far as you know what players are going to be you know do we worry about matt kemp and and both of us you know said no we think he's being undervalued in drafts and auctions etc so you know that study you know it, it was out there and uh we shall see uh matt kemp pulls the ball a little more which which is helpful because that's where you can really get the damage done in Safeco. I'm sorry, Petco is down the line. Um, it was that year that Mark Loretta hit like 11 home runs. I think eight of them were just barely over the fence to, to the, the short part of the left, you know, line drives that made it over just by the foul pole. Um, you know, how can Mark Loretta go out of Petco 11 times? Well, it's location, location, location. It was right down the line. Uh, and the same with Chase Headley a couple years ago from both sides of the plate. He had, uh, and that's another thing that this home run tracker does is it actually shows you where the home runs go and you can see um you can see you know either line and and the thing with Nelson Cruz he hits a lot to dead center field in all these parks where the what makes them home run parks is usually the alleys are deeper a lot of the parks even the big parks to the center field are pretty much the same so guys that hit the ball to dead center aren't going to be as affected by some of these home run these pitchers parks because they're not you know they're not hitting the ball in the alley where it's caught they're hitting the ball center field where the fences are all pretty close to 400 and 410 feet even in the bigger parks just a couple more of these before we move on uh, i liked your comment about hanley ramirez kind of a high risk high reward play he's got four home runs uh, i'm sorry four home runs in his first eight games i'm a little nfbc centric little high you know most of my play at this point is high stakes and or the industry leagues in which case they're all winner go home. And I decided to up my risk prep portfolio in some of these leagues. And he was a guy that I I decided to to go in on. And I had again have him on a few teams. Um now of course the NFBC offers insurance and I uh I have him as my insured player, so if he gets hurt, I get a couple bucks back, but that's neither here nor there. Uh but the point being I you know, he he's in and I you know, tongue in cheek, a monster season if he can stay healthy. Let's see if he can stay healthy. He's already been one instance I don't within the past week where uh running out a hit or, or going a second on a hit, he you know, pulled up a little lame and is, you know, uh oh. because um, I think contrary to popular belief, I don't think playing left field is going to keep him healthier over playing shortstop or third base because uh, he seems to do more of his uh, damage to his his legs as he's actually running the bases. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think he's out of the woods because he's playing left field. Um, actually, he actually played third base the other day when uh, when when Pablo got hurt. But um, actually kind of cool. And I and I like this as well. I'm not sure how, how much this story went out. But Brock Holt was playing shortstop and doing a pretty good job in, when Xander Bogart was hurt. 
and they needed to replace Pablo, and they asked Hanley, you know, which do you want? You know, do you want to play short or third? And, you know, Brock will play the other one. And Hanley said, geez, the kid's doing a great job at short. I'll just go play third. So I think that says a lot, too, is uh, team, you know, team gamemanship and, you know, sport, not so much sportsmanship, but just I think doing the right thing for the team. I, I thought that was kind of a, you know, I'm a numbers guy, but as a, I think that was kind of an interesting uh, attitude sort of way that he, you know, play, taking one for the team. And I kind of thought that was a, a good forebearer for the rest of the season. Much was made in the offseason, of course, that Hanley Ramirez has a pretty good relationship with David Ortiz, and maybe maybe that influence is being felt. It's, of course, one of those things that we can't quantify, but it, it does make for interesting news. And as you said earlier when we opened this conversation, Todd, there's a lot to be said about narrative. we got to understand the narrative of the player's career arc, the things we know about him uh, that are not necessarily just technical things like swing path or you know speed of ball off the bat and those kind of things. Uh, the last guy I wanted to ask you about, Todd, Uh, for a long time Joey Votto owners and guys who wanted to be Joey Votto owners were always kind of carping about the fact that he took so many walks that he was so patient at the plate and seemed to be willing to give up the chance to swing for the fences just to draw a walk or, or hit a double and get on base and move the guys around he's got three home runs in his first nine games so the question is is it a real change or is it a small sample size fluke yeah him there's again there's a few different things in play with Joey Votto He's hitting second. So, you know, first of all, you know, just to take a step back, you know, I I never, you know, said that Joey Votto was a bad guy for taking a walk. You know, as a baseball, you know, studying of the game, I thought he's doing the right thing. Your job is to not make an out, and he didn't make an out a whole heck of a lot of times. So I wasn't one of the ones that, you know, know, were chastising Joey Votto for not expending the strike zone and swinging. Uh, however, I w- that mean I still wasn't drafting him on my fantasy team because he wasn't getting the RBIs. So I mean, I wasn't you know mad at him for not doing it, but I wasn't putting him on my team either because for fantasy purposes he wasn't helping me. Now, having said that, he's hitting second now, and that's a spot where you know you are supposed to get on base. You know, you're not in a run position to drive in runs, especially in the National League with the with the pitcher batting ninth. Uh, I think the three homers, if nothing, it, it, what it tells us thus far anyway, is he's health. He's able to drive the ball again. He's able to uh, turn on the pitch, uh, which he might not have been able to do the past couple of years with some of the stuff going on in his lower body. Now, the oddity, you know, short sample size alert, uh, is he's only hit 20% fly balls, which is, is, you know, that's Ben Revere territory. But half of the fly balls that he's hit have left the yard. So maybe it's because he was able to, you know, saw a pitch he liked and turned on it. Um, you know, weird things, numbers like that in short samples you get all the time. But, you know, it's the the thing that to me that matters more than anything is he's got the same 17% walk rate that he's had, you know, throughout his career. So it's not as if he's walking fewer times and, and expanding the zone. He's just hitting the ball better when he does take a cut. And, you know, that should bode well if he can remain healthy. We're not going to see the 110, 120 RBIs, uh, you know, that we wanted from him a few years ago. But, you know, he could hit 20-something home runs and, and drive in 80. And that's better than what a lot of people might have paid for him in the in the spring. I think they're paying uh, a fifth-round, sixth-round price. And I think he might end up be a third-round, you know, a $20, $25 player. Uh if he stays healthy. Now, 
the, the sort of injuries he had, I don't know that they're, we can expect them to occur again. So I'm a little more optimistic that he does stay healthy. So uh, I did not take the chance. I do not own any Joey Votto shares. I'm not so sure I regret it. But I think those that did take the chance should be rewarded. And, of course, hitting second in what is a fairly decent offensive lineup, he's not going to get the RBIs, but he certainly could threaten 100 runs scored. Right, especially, I mean, I've been a Brandon Phillips fan for years, and they've been using him clean up the past couple of years. And, you know, love, love, love that dude, but he doesn't belong in the cleanup spot. So they, uh, they, they have moved him down and moved guys like Mezzarocco up in the order. And, uh, you know, a guy who I've been vocal negatively about, Jay Bruce, seems to uh, at least gotten back to reasonable play again. So if guys like Bruce and, and, and Todd Frazier looks like, you know, he's the, the improvement he made last year is, is real. Uh, you're right. It's a, it's a pretty good middle of the order. Once you get down towards the Zach Cozarts, that's where, uh, that's where Votto's RBI opportunities are going to be hurt. Um, but if, you know, he should score plenty of runs and, you know, he's going to knock, you know, he'll, he'll knock in a few runs, uh, you know, hitting the home runs. But I think that, you know, big picture wise, he'll, uh, he should be a decent return on the investment. What he's going to do is going to, what it's going to end up being, he's going to have more home runs than your normal number two hitter. Is uh, if we forget the fact that he's Joey Votto, if uh, in the end of the year we say he scored a lot of runs, had a high average, and he's got more home runs than a typical number two hitter, uh, is probably the best way in a vacuum to describe what should happen. Who knows? Maybe they'll move him down in the order, and uh, we'll see what happens then as far as the walk rate goes. Because if he is hitting home runs, maybe they will want to move him down. But um, at least for now, anyway, uh, he seems comfortable in the two-hole, and maybe he's uh, benefiting by seeing some uh, fastballs when Billy Hamilton gets on as well. Yeah, it, it all dovetails together, and we have to keep that in mind. I know for years, a lot of people were saying that Joey Votto is kind of the ideal number two hitter. He's he's capable of taking a pitch, which allows that top-of-the-order guy to maybe run a little more freely. He runs the bases well himself. I was watching, uh, I've, I'm a Reds fan, so I've been watching their games, and, and he certainly looks limber and fast running the bases, yeah. not necessarily stealing bases, but when going first to third, going second to home, uh, first to home on an extra base hit. He looks very fluid out there. He does look like he's a guy coming back from or dealing with the aftermath of knee surgery which he had and uh, of course that that is always a, a bit of a problem so uh, I'm not going to say like you I'm not going to say Joey Votto's on his way to 30 home runs or anything like that but boy if you set the over under at 25 I don't know which way I'd swing yeah I, fluid is the perfect word he looks sometimes you know you, we, we all play, we play softball and you can just you can tell the good ball player during warm-ups just by the way they the, the actions that they have and how fluid and how smooth they are he's kind of like that on the baseball field he just you know, he looks like a natural and he didn't look like that the past couple of years it was forced it was choppy you know i noticed the same thing he looks like you know even just throwing infield practice you know he just looks smooth so uh but you're right with the knee you know is it he had the surgery it's fixed does that mean that it's more susceptible to further injury i i don't know i think that uh I think it's a good shot. You know, he's a guy. I didn't think I mentioned it in the article, but if his owner's looking to sell high, I uh, I might be interested. <laughs> I actually would be interested at this point. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola of BaseballHQ.com and ESPN and MastersBall.com, Fantasy Alarm, and Todd. The big story this week: uh, Chris Bryant was called up. I guess the question is, what do you expect from Chris Bryant as he uh, embarks on his major league career? Who's to say if he would have come up anyway if 
if uh, future Hall of Famer Mike Olt hadn't been placed on the disabled list. But uh, he's getting the chance. You know, I say this, you know, a couple times every preseason. I'm scared of heights, I'm scared of snakes, and I'm scared of strikeouts. And Chris Bryant strikes out. So I think there is some concern. And the, several of the previous uh, prospects that have come up, your, your Will Myers, you know, they, they, they come up with the power numbers, they come up with all the stuff, but they strike out a lot, and it hasn't yet translated. I'm not the minor league guru that other people are. But from what I've read and from what I've seen, I'm going to lean towards Chris Bryant overcoming the strikeouts, maybe not right away, but translating more of what we're seeing than some of these other prospects that may have come up recently. So I am cautiously optimistic that he is a help. I don't know that he's going to be as much of a help as some people think this year. I mean, they're talking 35, 40 homers not realizing that, you know, one player in the major leagues hit 40 home runs last year, and I think only 11 hit 30, so it's a pretty tall task to expect anybody to reach that level in today's environment. But I do think he could hit 20-25. I'm concerned about his defense. Uh, is he going to – right now he's going to be playing third because that's where the, where the hole is. But if he's not the best fielder, is that going to impact uh, negatively? Is he going to take that to the plate with him, you know, because it's still a young team, et cetera? So I'm not going to be the guy that says, you know, rookie, you know, he's a rookie. I'm not expecting much, but I'm not, I don't own him anywhere. I'm not, you know, I'm not expecting my team to be the championship team because he's now being called up either. You mentioned his strikeout rate. It's, uh, it is pretty severe. Even in the minor leagues, it's been uh, 25% or higher of his plate appearances have resulted in strikeouts. And I know that there are people out there listening who are going to say, yeah, but he's going to hit all those home runs. We can kind of count on that. And I have two worries about that, and, and, I'll, and then I'll ask you to comment. But my first worry is when a guy comes up with that kind of strikeout proclivity, it's not going to get better moving from the minors to the majors. If anything, it, the pitch, of course, the pitching's so much better. The umpiring is so much more favorable towards the pitchers, especially on the low outside uh, pitch. There are a lot of reasons to suspect that Chris Bryant is going to struggle with strikeouts, and not only does that reduce his batting average, but I also think it reduces his RBI potential because, of course, you're not going to drop push a run across the plate on strike three. Right now, yeah, you kind of hit on what I would have mentioned is, um, you know, ML MLEs, major league equivalents or minor league equivalents. There's a certain amount of if you strike out 25 percent in the minors. You know, whatever the exact number is, 30, 32%, there's a translation that, you know, globally what you would then be expected to strike out as a major leaguer. Now, if he keeps it close to that 20 or 25% that he's got, I'm not as concerned because, you know, there's a lot of players right now in the major leagues, you know, successful hitters that are in this environment that are striking out 25% of the time. If he can keep it at that level, I think we're okay. The question is, does he strike out more? Uh, and, you know, the other counter, not so much counter, but major league ballparks have better lighting, and and you just you 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 feel better. You're you're on planes and not buses, and and you're sleeping in, in better hotels, etc. So sometimes the drop in strikeouts isn't as great. So that's you know to me that's going to be the key. I don't care if he doesn't hit a home run for the first you know three weeks. I want to watch his strikeout rate, and if it stays kind of close to where it is, you know I'm going to expect by the end of the season the numbers will be there. Um, walk rate isn't horrible. It's I, you know, the, that that too, 
you know, do minor league pitchers pitch around him that major league pitchers might not. So I, I put less credence or, or looking into a walk rate, a high walk rate in the minors. I don't necessarily get concerned if it doesn't translate to the majors, uh, at least immediately, just because the, the, the approach of the pitchers are going to be different. Uh, but I guess, yeah, I mean, to me, it's, it's the strikeouts, you know, snakes and heights and strikeouts. <laughs> We should point out, to be fair, that there are some very successful hitters in the big leagues who have strikeout rates above 25%. Mike Trout last year was 26.1%. Uh, Shinsu Chu's around 25 And you got climbing up the list, you got guys like Ian Desmond and and uh, Adam Dunn who are you know getting closer to 30% and Chris Carter at over 30%. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Chris Bryant can come up, strike out 25 26% of the time and still be a very productive player. Right, that's what I think we're hoping. Now, once he gets in that 30 or 33% range, then you have to have the prolific power that, that Chris Carter has, um, in order to, you know, and, 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 you know, Chris Carter, you know, has, probably has more raw power than, than, you know, the guys that, you know, Miguel Cabrera, Mike Trout, et cetera, but he just strikes out so darn much, and he, the, the home runs are tempered a bit. So, right, and I don't think Bryant might, you know, I don't think he's quite at that level. Uh, so yeah, keep the whole, you know, keep the strike, especially in, in, in today's game where, you know, we strikeouts are more prevalent. You keep that in the 25% range. I think we have something. And then if he's as good a hitter as we think he is, he'll improve next year, you know, 23% and then 21%. And then we have the perennial all-star that, uh, cause that's the other thing people sort of seem to forget is we think of a guy like Chris Bryant and what he, what he's going to be at his peak. He's not going to be at that this year. So, you know, let's, let's, uh, you know, temper expectations initially. And, you know, his peak, he may be a, you know, a 280, 35 home run guy. That's not, we're not at his peak. Let's, uh, you know, let's temper it er initial on, early on and, uh, enjoy the fact that he's up, you know, after only two weeks. So we get to see him for the next, you know, 24. And years beyond that as well. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, that there are a lot of successful or reasonably successful players with that 25% plus strikeout rate. I should throw in a, a little caution about that. Most of them had very low batting averages. So it's it's a trade-off. Uh, the, the usual trade-off is you've got to accept the, the lower batting average to get the home runs that go along with that big strikeout rate. Right, and keeping, you know, we've, we've talked about it with sort of Baseball HQ's platform over the spring is the, the, the baseline for batting average has dropped. So 250 isn't as bad as it was six or seven years ago right. on a fantasy basis. You know, the, you know, 250 might be what a 265 or 270 was as far as, you know, impact on your team and in the standings. So, you know, we sort of have to, in, you know, at least somewhat keep that in the back of our minds too, that, uh, you know, a 250 hitter isn't as bad as it might have been, you know, several years ago. And Todd, uh, you and I are both Tout Wars participants, and this year they've added a, another wrinkle, which is they've set up a private uh, daily game for us to play every Friday. There's about 35 or 40 of us, I guess, that, that go into this daily game. It's my first experience in daily fantasy baseball, and uh, I know you're quite, you've been playing it for quite a long time, so I wanted to ask you a couple of things about it. Uh, the the big question I have in looking at the larger site, I'm not just focusing on the Tout Wars competition, is there's a whole category of games called head-to-head. -head, and I'm wondering, what's your opinion about playing those 
head-to-head matchups, which is just you versus me. Winner takes the pot, less whatever uh, you know the company takes to facilitate the game. Versus playing in, they have the fifty-fifty type games or the cash games and so forth. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting dynamic. I actually talked a little bit about this on the aforementioned first pitch tours because this was a popular question. The um, in each case where you're essentially going to double your money, whatever it's a one dollar entry or ten dollar, whatever it, it case, you're gonna you're gonna double your your money. So you know that's consistent between the two. The the primary difference being in the head to head, you can occasionally defeat your opponent with a lineup that is as a lesser lineup. You didn't you didn't hit on all cylinders on your lineup, but you know what? Your opponent did even worse. Uh, that's not going to happen in the larger scale 50-50s and double ups where there's uh, you know several hundred or you know sometimes only ten, but up to hundreds or even thousands and tens of thousands of people. A lesser lineup is not going to finish in the top half of a you know of a, of a tournament of that nature. Now the flip side of that is, and here's where it gets interesting, is if we're playing heads up. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm for sure gonna put a lineup in. Whether it does well or not, who's to say? But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, forget to check, you know, cause I wanna, I, I care, I care more about beating you, Patrick, than I do about the, the, the couple of bucks that, that we have on the line. So it's more of the pride thing. So I'm gonna make sure I have a team in there. Uh, there's a lot of people in these larger entry 50-50s that might not pay close attention to the weather or might not know about a late switch. And they may have, especially in FanDuel, where there's only eight or nine lineup uh, positions, one of those is with a player getting a zero, you're, you know, the word for that is dead money in a 50-50. So you're going to get more dead money in these larger entry 50-50s. So now what you do is need to balance the possibility that you beat me with a lineup that underperformed versus the increase of your chances of winning or placing uh, cashing in a uh, in a 50-50 with some dead money. I don't know. I'm not as into it as far. Maybe there's a mathematical formula that uh, can actually put, you know, put a number to it because uh, this whole thing is about probabilities and, you know, play, you know, putting your money where the probabilities lie. I have not played the head-to-heads myself. I prefer to go after the uh, the dead money in the in the 50-50s and seem to be doing okay at that. I'll play a couple of heads up just because, you know, someone some I'll write something and some guy thinks I'm an idiot and say, "Well, you know what? Let's 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 go head to head tonight and we'll see who's better." So I'll play a couple of those. But I as a general rule, I don't sign up for the uh, the 50-50s. Uh, I'm sorry, the the heads up. I focus more on my cash game on the double ups in the 50-50s. Todd, a lot of the discussion about daily fantasy baseball has to do with the issue of whether it's gambling or whether it's skill-based. Ron Chandler has a pretty interesting take on that in his uh, Fanalytics column at BaseballHQ.com, and I'll leave that uh, topic to him. It's certainly been discussed here at Baseball HQ Radio as well. But it seems to me that when you play head-to-head, it is more like gambling to the extent that as you mentioned, it's possible for you to have what would be a losing team in most of the formats at these websites, whether you're playing 50-50 or the small entry tournaments or whatever you're playing at whatever stakes. If you finish you know, in the top 20% in some, you're going to win. The top 50% in the 50-50s, you're going to win because you have a good lineup. 
And unfortunately, in head-to-head, you can have that same good team that would have won money, but you can lose because the other guy had a better lineup. And conversely, you can take a team that would have been a loser, as you said, and turn it into a winner because you're only running up against one guy rather than a 1,000 guys or 10,000 guys who have lineups in as well. So uh, as far as how much skill is involved, it seems like that the, that matter tilts way more towards playing in, in large entry, large scale entry um, games. Yeah, I, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I, I just was kicking myself for, for not bringing up the other flip side. How many flip sides can there be in the <laughs> head to head where you have that fantastic night? But guess what? Your opponent had just a little bit more of a fantastic night. So the reason I play more of the cash games is I kind of feel that those even themselves out, those those two odds, those two chances even themselves out, and that the deciding factor is the dead money in the cat in the fifty fifties with you know a hundred hundred thousand people entering them into them. But um, I don't know, you know, the whole you know which is is it is it more of a gamble to do the fifty fifty? I'm not sure. I think the the gamble is. And I don't know the answer to this. Is someone is someone that plays a fifty-fifty? What is their acumen to the actual game? Is someone that puts in a fifty-fifty lineup? Do they know what they're doing, or they do not know what they're doing? Because to me, that's more of the. And I, I just I don't know the answer to that. Now, all these sites make it available that you can see the record of the person you're playing against. Uh, usually, somebody opens up. You know, I you know it's sort of an open challenge. Someone challenged me tonight. So before I accept the challenge, um, I can see what this person's record is and how many games they've won, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I don't know if a person that plays a 50-50 is a better player than those that generally join the cash games. Uh, I'm gonna, that's sort of another thing is I always assume that if you had the, the wherewithal to challenge someone like that, you're probably pretty good. So, which is another reason why I wanted to shy away from the uh, the head-to-head like that, and and go more towards the cash games. Yeah, I think it makes sense uh, if you're confident that you are uh, a skilled player that you want to try to put your skill into the largest pool possible because it it allows you to be uh, less prone, shall we say, or less subject to the whims and vagaries of luck in, in a particular instance, and and. Your acumen is more likely to be rewarded, let us say that. Uh, Todd Zola, we appreciate you rewarding us with your acumen, as always, on Fridays, and we look forward to talking with you again next week. Uh, Looking forward to myself, Patrick, and hopefully one of the two of us will be talking about our winning lineup in the Tout Daily. That would be good. Uh, I hope it's me, but if it's not me, I hope it's you. Uh, Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, for ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, Masters Ball, Fantasy Alarm, and elsewhere. And you hear me say it every week, wherever Todd Zola is writing, you ought to be reading. When we come back, it's our Baseball HQ commentaries. It's the matchups and master notes coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd buy me some peanuts and cracker jack i don't care if i never get back let me root 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 for the home team if they don't win it's a shame for it's one two three strikes you're out at the old ball game Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball 
HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have Ron Chandler and Master Notes. And right now, our pitcher matchup report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, ballpark, and other factors. Starting pitchers score from negative 5 to positive 5. Scores of 2 or higher are recommended, while scores below 0, well, they're best avoided. Here with this weekend's matchups is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. With the small sample size thus far in the 2015 season, the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool will continue to rely heavily on 2014 performance metrics until May. This coming weekend features, if you can call it that, eight pitcher matchup ratings less than zero. But only one is in the National League, and it's owned by Giants rookie right-hander Chris Heston for his Saturday home start against the Arizona Diamondbacks and Ruby De La Rosa, who has a matchup rating of 0-14. But wait, Heston has two PQS-5s in his first two starts, and one of those was against the D-backs. So why the lack of love? Well, with 2014 performance carrying more weight in the opening month of the 2015 season, Heston's first two starts are too little and too early to influence what is only the fourth matchup rating of his young career. And here's why. In the small sample of his two starts this season, we can see that his 61% ground ball rate is unusually high, even for a soft-tossing sinker baller, which is what he is. So he'll be allowing more runners soon, and his 93% strand rate will also come crashing down, meaning he'll allow more of those runners to score. So while Heston pitches in a favorable home environment at AT AT&T Park in San Francisco, and he seems set in the Giants' rotation, it's best to heed the warning of his minus 125 matchup rating for this start and keep your distance while keeping an eye on his performance. Meanwhile, the Dodgers are already on a roll this season. Their hitters have the highest OPS in the league, and their pitchers have the most strikeouts. It's no surprise, then, that the Dodgers' Zach Grenke has the highest matchup rating of the weekend at 319. Grenke has a home start against those new road warriors, the Colorado Rockies, and Jordan Lyles, with his matchup rating of 177. The Rockies have already won six games on the road this season. But the fact that Colorado won only five games on the road after the All-Star break last season still weighs heavily against them, boosting their opponents' matchup ratings when the Rockies are on the road. And unlike Heston's two PQS-5s in 2015, Grenke's two PQS-5s combine with two PQS-4s and another PQS-5 against the Rockies last season, not to mention 24 PQS-dominant starts overall in 2014. Grenke looks like the closest thing to a lock in either league this weekend. Moving over to the AL for Sunday, Garrett Richards returns from knee surgery for his first start of the season with a matchup rating of 234. He'll be at Houston for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, pitching against the Astros in near-neutral Minute Maid Park, against Scott Feldman, who has a matchup rating of 117. Last week, things went swimmingly for Chris Sale in his first start back after a fractured foot. Will it be smooth sailing for Richards as well? It should be. Richards threw more innings against Houston than against any other team in 2014. 
he came away with two PQS5s, a PQS3, and a PQS2. Only the Phillies were more futile than the Astros against him, posting a 17% swinging strike rate to Houston's 14%. Richards struck out 8.8 .8 batters per nine innings last season, and Houston <coughs> hitters are the 2015 Major League Baseball leaders in striking out. On the negative side of Sunday's slate in the American League, beware of the Texas Rangers' Ross Detweiler, even though he's in pitcher-friendly Safeco Field to face the Seattle Mariners. Detweiler's matchup rating is minus 154 for a reason, or rather, for several reasons. His first two starts this year have been PQS disaster zeros. He's pitched 10 innings, giving up 18 hits and 6 walks. He was used solely in relief last season and allowed right-handed batters an 848 opponent's OPS. As a start of the prior year of 2013, that figure was a tick worse at 849. Detweiler's mound opponent is another lefty, James Paxton, who also has PQS fives in his first two starts this season. But his 2014 performance helped him earn a matchup rating of 102. Outside of Nelson Cruz, four of the five right-handed hitters in the Mariners lineup are off to slow starts. But as Christopher Olson wrote about Ross Detweiler in the 2015 Baseball Forecaster, right-handed batters lick their chops when they see him. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and, of course, here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at how nothing in April is real, maybe, here's BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. Yesterday a buddy of mine asked me how my fantasy teams are doing. I kind of looked at him funny and said, I have no idea. Really. I don't look at the standings at all until closer to the end of the month. It's It's pointless. I don't care that Adrian Gonzalez hit five home runs in three days. He did the same thing a few years ago, but it was August and nobody noticed. I'm certainly not impressed by Aaron Harang's sub-1 ERA. He got off to a similar start last year, posted a .85 ERA after five starts, then pitched to a 4-plus ERA the rest of the way. Everyone knows the name Tuffy Rhodes, right? He hit three homers on opening day 1994 and ended up with eight for the season. But we can't seem to pry ourselves away from the allure of these fast starts. All these early season performances are under the microscope because it's all we have. And the media needs to have something to write about. Unless a player is doing something to indicate an undisclosed injury or a fringe guy playing himself into more at-bats or innings, I'm just not paying attention. Actually... There is one other type of April performance that has some predictive value. Pitchers who struggle early in the season often don't right the ship. Yes, we can look back to CC Sabathia in 2008. He had a 13.50 ERA after four starts and finished the season with an ERA of 2.70. He's the example that provides hope for a turnaround, but he's also the exception rather than the rule. In far more cases, pitchers who dig themselves into an ERA hole in April find it difficult to climb out. They might actually perform close to their career average over the better part of the season, but that poor start drags down their seasonal line. 
Part of it is due to the smaller base of stats that innings provide. Heck, if you pulled out Sabathia's first four starts that year, his ERA would have been 188. Those four starts out of 35 inflated his ERA by nearly a full run. But part of it may also be early indications of something amiss. You never know for sure, but you have to at least ask the question. So, should we be concerned about Clayton Kershaw? After two starts, he has an ERA of 584. His peripherals are still mostly strong and in line with past history, though he has walked five batters in 12 innings, which is high for him. A 42% hit rate and 65% strand rate have inflated his ERA. So it appears those two starts are not predictive. But I'm willing to bet that nearly everyone who drafted him in the first round is feeling just a little uneasy right now. Not publicly, of course, but deep down, there's this little Speedy Gonzalez guy bouncing around the walls of their stomach yelling, Arriba, Arriba, Andale, Andale, trying to wake up those stats. We can be perfectly logical and objective, but there is one nagging fact. One day, someday, Clayton Kershaw will no longer be the best pitcher in baseball. Heck, he's already had a longer run of first-round earnings than any other pitcher in the past 15 years. We are already seeing small chinks in the armor. He missed a month with an injury last year, and now this start. Could this be the beginning of the eventual fade? The peripherals say no. They say that this is a short-term aberration, but even those luck-based gauges, hit rate and strand rate, have some small skills-based component. Hit rate can be affected by how hard opposing batters are hitting the ball. And in fact, Kershaw's hard hit ball rate is the highest of his career at 31%. It's a full 7% higher than last year. Are batters squaring up better against him? Strand rate can be affected by a pitcher's ability to throw from the stretch. And in fact, Kershaw's opposition batting average with runners on base has been 357. Over the past three years, it was 197. But to be honest, even his performance with nobody on base is off 273 this year versus 202 over the last three years. Finally, elite pitchers often do not take a slow, prolonged path to declining performance. Sometimes the turnaround is sudden and sharp. Look at Roy Halladay. Look at Tim Lincecum. Look at Justin Verlander. If you are a Kershaw owner, I don't suggest that you should be jumping off a cliff. But I do suggest that you don't keep your head in the sand either. How many Lincecum and Verlander owners hung on during that first season of decline hoping for a turnaround? These days, there is a lot of good pitching around. If Clayton Kershaw is still struggling a few weeks from now and you have the opportunity to flip him for 80 cents on the dollar, hmm, that's a deal I would personally consider. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler for BaseballHQ.com. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com. You can get master notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for April the 17th. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of our podcast, Todd Zola, and our talk with Todd, always entertaining and interesting every single Friday. I also want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Ray Murphy, pinch hitting for Harold Nichols, and Jock Thompson. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick, and our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday when our expert guest will be Ask Rotoman expert and Tout Wars Commissioner Peter Kreutzer. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.